Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today in a very deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Emily Bundell. Emily is the CEO of Bluebella Limited, a multi-award winning lingerie and nightwear brand based over in London. Uh, Emily, welcome. Great to have you with us on the programme today. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure having you, Emily. Now, um, you, of course, launched uh, Bluebella some time ago now, back in uh, 2005. Did you always imagine quite early on in your career that you'd end up in a leadership position and ultimately heading up your own business? Um, yeah, I think looking back, it was probably quite obvious. You know, I had various, right through school, I was had sort of various entrepreneurial rackets on the go. And uh, at university, I was sort of student body president and so on. So I think... Yeah, I've always enjoyed creating something and sort of driving it forward and sort of taking responsibility for the good and the bad. I've often, I'm, I'm not a terribly good employee, I think is the, <laughs> the honest answer. So it was quite a natural step for me to, to start my own business and, and to lead it forward. And how would you describe your own leadership style? Oh gosh, that's a good question. You probably ask me and my team separately that. But <laughs> I mean, I like, I think collaborative definitely you know I think that um, I you know will often go to, to my team with a idea that I'm very ready to put down after a discussion and um, an exploration so um, I think I've got a, a collaborative style um, I would say you know we're sort of relatively small team uh, a relatively informal style as well I like people you know at any level to feel they can say anything come forward challenge things um so it's sort of an open door policy as well um i think quite a lot of humor as well you know <laughs> more important now than, than ever before so i think it's really important we spend so much time at work that uh, we can enjoy ourselves and you know have a bit of a, a laugh um to, to get us get us through the, the tough times it is um, hugely important. You're absolutely right. And um, the importance of that um, positive um, culture, that um, sort of collaboration, as it were, is so, so important in the context of what's going on at the moment, the topical issue of the day of COVID-19. It's really highlighted the need for good and effective leadership, good and effective communication and also trust in um, your team, hasn't it? Yeah, for sure. You know, I think, you know, obviously it's a you know, terrible situation from every angle, of course. Um, but, you know, you've got to look for the positives. And I do think that it has made people really sort of think about what are the, you know, what are the really important ways that they communicate with their team and how they can do that most effectively and most efficiently. I mean, we've certainly been looking at various meeting formats and improving them, you know, because we're slightly restricted by not being in the same room. It forces you to look at how you're doing things and how you could do them better and get information disseminated as well as possible and as clearly as possible. So I do think, you know, I absolutely believe at the end of this, things will be fundamentally changed in positive ways um, going forward in terms of how we work and how we communicate. Yes, it certainly is a learning curve uh, for business, isn't it? I mean, setting up um, a business yourself um, to begin with is, of course, a learning curve in and of itself. But this whole crisis, it's really thrown up a lot of questions for business leaders and it will really have an impact on the way that we do things in future, won't it? Yeah, I think that, I think that's right. You know, I think it, it, it's certainly how we work, um, you know, what, you know, what's needed and what isn't. Um, you know, obviously embracing technology, though, you know, we were, all, we were already relatively set up and flexible and able to work remotely 
a lot of businesses that, that haven't been in the past have been forced to be. And I think once you embrace that, there's, there's no going back, which is, is a good thing. Absolutely. And um, if we were to speak to the next generation of uh, business leaders and entrepreneurs that will be emerging in the next few years, um, what are the key qualities that you would tell them to embrace? Um, you know, I think I would be an advocate of, of, of some of the sort of soft skills, to be honest. You know, I think more than ever, what this crisis has highlighted, but, but was a growing awareness of anyway, is... In leading a business, you know, yes, you're responsible for your shareholder value and the top and bottom line, but you are also have a duty of care to your team. Um, and, you know, I think mental health has been a sort of hot topic and the crisis has sort of intensified the focus on that. So I think making sure that you're somebody who genuinely wants to develop um, and in the right way nurture your team Um is increasingly important and also, you know, attracts the best talent. I think millennials as well documented look for more than just um, the sort of um, paycheck and sort of standard things now. They're looking for an environment that is welcoming, creative, you know, that values them as, as, as people and workers. So I'd be an advocate of, of some of those soft, softer skills, in, as they're called, wrongly or rightly, in the next generation of leaders. Absolutely, because it's important to remember that it's not just a one man, one woman job being a leader, is it? It's just as much about the people around you and also nurturing them, getting the best out of them and creating an atmosphere in which they can flourish as well. I think that's right. And I think the other bit, you know, is agility. You know, I think that, you know, my story has certainly been that, you know, the business has changed hugely, from, you know, in different ways over the years, you know, sometimes to improve, sometimes to survive. And I think that, we need to make sure we've got, you know, a generation that is open to change, agile, agile welcoming of, of new ways of working, new ways of doing things, innovating. Um, I think the pace of change gets quicker and quicker. So we need people that, that thrive on that. Of course, it's very much that ability to be reactive and to be innovative in the face of uh, changing circumstances, isn't it? It's hugely important. Um, that brings me quite nicely on to uh, this next question that I would like to ask. Um, would you say that it's possible for a good leader to essentially be a good leader without trying things, without making mistakes and then learning from those mistakes? Because it is very much a work in progress being in a leadership position, isn't it? It's very much a learning process. Oh, for sure. And I think, you know, the entrepreneurial journey generally, I mean, the best bit of advice anyone ever gave me I think, when I started out was, you know, being an entrepreneur is is somebody with the ability to constantly fall over and pick themselves up again. <laughs> and, you know, the message is that tenacity, you know, to make the mistake, fall over, but be able to get up again and not make it again is the key skill. And it's, I think that's hugely comforting to people going through that journey because you don't berate yourself too much you just realize okay what can I what can I take from this experience and learn to improve going forward so yeah I think it you know I think there are a, a large part of leadership a large part of you know being an entrepreneur that you just can't teach in a classroom it's about being out there and, and, and doing it and having the ability to learn from it Exactly. These are qualities that aren't necessarily taught, but are essentially developed throughout experience, aren't they? Um, I think there are some things that perhaps people can, can be born with, such as self-motivation and hunger, but there are some things that do have to be learned. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I don't believe this whole, you know, you're born into this or not. You know, I think if you have a desire to 
to be something. You can develop yourself. You can develop how you think. You know, there's a lot of different ways you can um, reshape your your process if you sort of tend to get stuck in a rut, or your you know the way you the way you approach things, the way you think about things. So I think you can certainly personally develop. Um, that, 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 that's for sure. But I think yeah, I think you can't replace actual actual experience. And I think particularly as well, sort of. The, the nuances of dealing with people and cultural fit and, you know, those sort of things, which are so sort of nuanced, it, it, it's quite difficult to explain those when you haven't sort of been through the experience of perhaps making the wrong hire that didn't fit culturally or, you know, whatever. I think that's, that's, that's a lesson you often have to learn yourself. I can certainly see where you're coming from with with that point, um, Emily. Um, a bit more of an abstract um, question now. Um, if you could be the third female prime minister in British history for what just one day, what would be the one thing that you would try to change to help business? Oh my goodness, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is sort of perhaps sort of too personal in, 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 in that what would have helped me the most, which perhaps isn't the best thing for the country as a whole. But uh, certainly one thing that I think is, well, okay, I'm going to say two things. I think the one thing that I've experienced as, a, as an issue in my journey personally is is funding, for early stage funding for businesses that don't fit the mould for the existing channels. So, you know, an issue I had early on is, you know, my product is very female-focused. It's a product that women wear. You know, the typical early stage investment for, for that kind of business is, you know, the business angel community. You know, the banks are still quite, you know, that was when I started, the banks you know, in the recession, banks and lending. So the problem is that angel investors tend to invest in sectors they have experience of um, and that they know quite understandably. And so because 95% of the angel investor community in the UK is, is male, um, it's a very sort of narrow pool. And so I think what happens is businesses that sit outside um, the experience of that narrow narrow pool have challenges around funding. So I think we need to get more you know, women in the agile community. Um, we need to look at ways to ensure female-focused businesses are backed um, appropriately. So I think that's, that's definitely one thing. The other thing I'd say is I think we've kind of got a gap here in that we're not, putting entrepreneurship forward as a sort of really exciting, enticing career option at our top universities. You know, you look at the businesses that are coming out of the States, from MIT and, you know, and so on, and you, you haven't, you know, it's getting better here, I think, but it's certainly not at a level um, as compared to the US. And certainly when I was, you know, I went to Oxford University, it just wasn't really presented as an option. So I think... I think as well we need to be thinking about how we're how we're encouraging um, that you know the next you know, Facebook or whatever to come out of a UK university rather than a US one. Absolutely. Um, some really, really thought-provoking points there, um, Emily. And I think the way that we as a country, um, especially coming out of this outbreak, uh, start to approach this is going to be so, so important uh, for the future because there does need to be far more uh, female representation um, in business and far more opportunities for them. Um, but also we need to be delivering positive messages to the next generation of leaders alongside that as well. Um, I am conscious of uh, running out of time, um, Emily, but before we do ra- go about wrapping things up, um, do give me an idea of what you imagine in the next 12 months will hold for yourself and for Blue Bella and what you really hope to achieve in that time, particularly going through COVID-19 and out the other side of that? 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, like, like nearly every business, our original forecast in the next 12 months has changed dramatically in the last few weeks. So, you know, I think for us, you know, our strategy is this is a time to work in partnership with our key partners, our retailers and our suppliers to come out more strongly than ever on the other side, you know. So we are, you know, working closely, you know, with, with them to ensure we have our, you know, our phasing, our stock planning and so on um, right to get through the crisis. But equally, you know, we have a product that makes people smile. It's, you know, it's a beautiful, self-indulgent, luxurious pick-me-up. And so, you know, we've, and we've also got a sort of very large young audience that we can also not only cheer up, but also put out positive messages and, and the right messages through, through this difficult time. So I think we feel, you know, we've got an opportunity to use our platform really positively for the wider good, deepen our partnerships with our, you know, retailers and suppliers. Um, and, you know, it's going to be tough trading time, of course, for any, for any retail business. But it's coming out the other side with, you know, with, with more strength than ever in those two areas. And I'm, you know, I'm confident we can do that. Yes, and let's hope that it does um, really um, end up being borne out that way and we do start seeing an upward trajectory sooner rather than later. And business fundamentally is in a position to hit the ground running and really seize upon the opportunities that this will present. Um, Emily, I have to say, um, yeah, carry on. No, I was going to say, and I think that, I think there's also, you know, there is opportunity within, you know, these times. Certainly, you know, we're lucky because our direct business is, is, is online. So, you know, we've not been hit by the store closures. But, you know, there's opportunity around sort of looking at what you're doing and how you can adapt it for the times. You know, our loungewear business is suddenly thriving, you know, mm. beyond all forecasts. So we're promoting um, that, you know. So I think as well, it's it's back to that same point of, of earlier about agility and looking at, okay, where are we? You know, what can we do for the business? And actually, what can we do for good with our platform as well? I think a lot of businesses are really, you know, taking the opportunity to see how they can help. And I think that's you know, there's only so much we can do as an laundry business, but we can make people smile. Um, a lot of friends that, that run businesses are actually turning their infrastructure um, to, to be really helpful to, to a time like this, which I think is a, you know, a really lovely thing. Exactly. And it's a stellar example of how business can adapt and can innovate and be reactive and really still be able to thrive in spite of uh, the challenges that this pandemic is throwing um, up um, for business uh, as a whole. Um, I have to say, Emily, it's been um, really insightful and also an absolute pleasure having you on the programme to discuss these um, issues today. And what I think would be fantastic is to perhaps have you back on the programme in a few months' time to look at this retrospectively and just see how, going beyond COVID-19, these hopes have been borne out. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the programme. No problem. Thanks for having me. It's been wonderful. Uh, Coming up next on the programme, we'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Liz Field. Liz is the Chief Executive of the Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association, the trade body for firms who provide investment management and financial advice services for individuals and families. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Liz, and that will be coming up now. I'm Jonathan White, and we're joined today by Liz Field, CEO of PIMFA, Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. What a great mouthful. Liz, thank you very much for coming on today. No, thank you for inviting me. No, not a problem. A complete pleasure. And I think uh, it would be a great place to start, if we may. There's maybe a little bit of background uh, for the listeners. Obviously, PIMFA does work in uh, uh, across 
the board these days, but of course it was only founded uh, uh, three years ago when, of course, um, MAPFA and uh, the WMA were merged. That's right, yes. Um, I think it really was a, a reflection of of where the industry was going in terms of uh, the provision of financial advice and helping individuals with their um, personal financial futures that we felt that it was necessary for the two bodies to merge together. Um, but both, had, well, certainly the Wealth Management Association and its predecessors have been around for nine, well, nearly 30 years yes. now, actually. But you're quite right. Um, as PIMFA, it's, it's been nearly three years now. And the uh, probably a very wise move because uh, the, the uh, uh, PIMFA's been going from strength to strength uh, since... Uh, what would you say at the moment uh, is are, are, are the priorities uh, for yourselves there? Um, I think there are a number of priorities. I mean, we represent a diverse group of um, of businesses, which all have one thing in common, which is that they face the clients, they they face the consumer. Um, so whether that is face to face or whether that is um, online. Uh, it's all about helping individuals to plan and save and invest um, for themselves and for their families. Uh, but we're going through uh, a number of, of key challenges. I mean, um, looking at a, a, I could have a, a macro level, if you like, um, markets are a little turbulent. Um, it's, it's very challenging um, to... Um, Kind of navigate the the uh, investment management world. So uh, even more reason why you need a financial advisor and uh, and an investment management firm to help you, um, because it is quite a complex arena, and that's not helped by the lack of financial education uh, more generally. So um, if you have that as a backdrop, uh, and then politically you have what's going on um, with post Brexit uh, and where the rules are going to come from in future, all of that is still to be negotiated. Um, so it, it's a whole melting pot of issues that uh, that our firms are trying to face. Oh, without a doubt. I think uh, it, maybe, Lizzie, there's quite a few understatements there in terms of the challenges that are yes. uh, occurring <laughs> at the moment. But there's quite a lot to pick up uh, uh, on the on those points because uh, I, I think it's, 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 a, it's a unique time almost, Lizzie, isn't it, where there are a different set of challenges that advisors and individuals are uh, being confronted with from a lot of different angles. Um, and perhaps if we can start, let's start at the beginning, in fact, you bring up the issue of financial education. Yeah. Now, that's something I think uh, you can talk to anybody in the business and they'd agree with you on that front, Liz. We don't do it properly in this country. Where no. do you think, Liz, it should start from and how do we fix it? Okay, so I think, I mean, the first thing to say is that there's a lot of fantastic effort that we see across the whole of the financial services sector, uh, our sector um, amongst that, where they they try and go into schools um, and provide financial education. You go onto any website um, of some of our members and they've got some great educational material. Um, but there isn't a national framework that 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 wraps itself around the whole of the financial education efforts within our industry. And without that, um, I think there, there 
the the businesses are facing a lot of um, barriers when it comes to actually getting into schools. Um, I mean, financial education is part of the, um, per, I think it's personal health and social education um, a piece of the curriculum, but there isn't an exam um, that's at the end of it. So when it comes to schools and, and how they're being judged, it's on metrics such as um, exams and without an exam for financial education, um, I think uh, it's go- it's just it's just going to keep coming up against the same barriers. Mm. Um, and financial education is not the same as maths. So uh, what we'd also mm. quite like to see is is that we have more um, kind of money type questions within the maths curriculum, because that will also then bring it to life uh, for young people, for uh, youngsters and you know school kids. It will bring it to life because it's about things that they have to deal with or you know that they they deal with on a day-to-day basis which is money. So the more that we have that is populated in the curriculum that is about money um the better I think because that then we'll start to promote a culture of of savings and investments which we so badly need in our in 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 our um in our country. Without a doubt it's because and again you've hit the nail on the head because there's only so much that can be done without the involvement of the curriculum in schools. Yeah. Uh, and you know, you can, as you've pointed out very well, uh, it, it, companies can try all they all they might, but it, it's difficult if it's not a, a joint effort. Uh, yeah. And I think, as um, uh, for example, uh, with with the new government we have, there have already been positive noises at the very least. Whether they become actions is another. <laughs> a thing entirely regarding what you could consider a, for, a, a, a far more applied mathematics in, in a lot of uh, uh, the system, but ty- time will tell. And that's something I think we could probably dedicate in the next hour to. Liz. Yes, but I think you're right. <laughs> we probably shouldn't. Um, now, looking at, at a couple of other points to pick up that you've already raised here, Liz, uh, and it goes back to the word you've already said, which is uncertainty. Uh, it, it seemed as if the markets, investors, people, we've been in a state of limbo for the last three and a half years. Uh, we're talking, of course, three months after, two months after uh, a general election that resulted in a, a large majority for the Conservative Party, and therefore at least we have now uh, left the European Union without without dragging you down the political rabbit hole here, at least. Is there a hope now that because of that clarity, we may start to see a far more s- far more certainty in the market. And what are your hopes for the next twelve months? Um, I think I think that that we've still got a little way to go because um, whilst you know thirty first of January came and went, um, you know we're now we're now in a negotiation period. We're now in a transition period, mm-hmm. um, and for for UK. Um, savers and uh, and investors, uh, in terms of where the rules are made, there's still there's still not some clarity about that. Um, you know, we're we're still uh, well, we don't know yet whether we're still tied um, or will be tied to the um, European rulemaking um, down the line. That's still to be negotiated. I mean, we've always said that actually for for savers and investors, we need stability in the markets and we need access to funds. Um, however, it, you know, 
the, the majority of our of our firms look after UK savers, um, and therefore a one of the positives we see is the ability to have a a rule book that makes sense for UK savers and investors and UK firms. Um, so there's an uh, we think that there's an opportunity there with definitely without um, watering down regulation. So we're definitely not talking about less regulation. Yes. What we're talking about is smarter yes. regulation, which makes sense for firms and makes sense for clients. Um, and as we've got a very unique industry in terms of savings and investments um, um, in, Europe, in Europe, England, or U- the UK rather, and, and Ireland are unique amongst our European counterparties. So when you have a European rule book or a rule book that is set in Europe that doesn't bear any relation to the model of in- intermediation that we have here, that has caused us problems in the past, and we're hoping that we we will be able to affect that in the future with a local regulator and a local rule and a local rulemaker. But we will see. That is still all part of the of the melting pot. So whilst I'd like to be posi- positive and, and optimistic about the market, <laughs> um, we've still got this period um, of uh, of negotiation, and uh, until we see where we go to with that. Uh, and of course, you've got financial services and fisheries amongst yeah, the same two, piece, you know. <laughs> famous fellows, aren't they? Indeed, I mean, absolutely, um, absolutely. So we've still got to wait and see, I think. Absolutely. Um, and it will be an uh, interesting year, if nothing else. Um, yeah. uh, now, you, you, you mentioned there at least uh, the role of, uh, of course, regulators. I know uh, in the last month or so, obviously, uh, PIMFA has. Uh, given its fair amount of critique to um, the SEA, um, are they at the moment doing their job correctly? Um, I think part I I don't envy the regulator one iota. Um, uh, I think if you look at the the number of people that they have in the supervisory team and the number of firms that they have to regulate. Um, it, it, it is not an enviable job um, by any stretch of the imagination. Yes, we have been critical, not least of all because we are expecting um, better supervision to prevent firms from failing and certainly to prevent firms from failing in the spectacular way that they have uh, in the last few years, which has impacted on the size of the financial services compensation scheme levy. And this levy is paid for by by firms within the industry. And our firms are a majority of small to medium-sized firms, and their bills have gone up exponentially. Our criticism is that, you know, we we don't object to having an FSCS levy um, or, you know, the lifeboat yes. funds to pay, you know, recompense to to consumers. Uh, and, and our view is has always been that the polluter pays, but the polluters have, have long since folded by the time mm. it comes to any payment, which means that good firms are paying for bad firms. So the system, we believe, is broken. Um, and, and I think that is about the regulatory perimeter. Um, you know, what is it that the, that the lifeboat fund should be 
protecting. The perimeter is too big. So that, you know, what is the nature of risk? That all needs to be um, uh, redefined, we believe, and recalibrated, which then enables you to determine, well, if that's what risk is, then how do we protect it and how do we levy for it? Mm. Um, And that is all linked to better supervision. So that is something we have been critical about. Um, we're in the process of finalizing a paper, uh, which we um, which we have positioned in a constructive manner, which is these are some of the things that we believe, FCA, you should be looking at in your supervisory process. And we want to help you to do your job better. Now, I, I know there's no such thing as a a magic wand, Liz, and perhaps it'll be putting you on the spot. But if let's imagine, let's let's imagine you did have one just for the just for this afternoon, perhaps, and you were able to change one thing about that uh, system. And perhaps I shouldn't ask this because if your report isn't out yet, you might well want to reveal something that's in it. Um, but if you could, um, what, what would be your number one priority? If we if we were to if I were, my number one priority to to solve the system in terms of reform. In terms of reform, what regulatory reform, you mean? Um, I think, oh, goodness me, the one thing. um, It is a bit of a mean question. It is. Gosh, yes. Wow. Um, I I think it's about the regulatory perimeter. Um, I I think let's have a look at the regulatory perimeter, um, which is, you know, gives some certainty to, to clients about what is protected and what is not protected, which also then gives some assurity both to them and also to the advisors who have to advise those clients on what what's the pathway to success for them. And what and and I think if there's some clarity around all of that, then everybody will be will be better off. Great. Now I'm conscious of the time here. This is already catching up with us. So perhaps if we can take a a little step back and uh, and look at. Um, uh, the operations of PIMFOR again, it's what PIMFOR do, does so well is its ability to build relationships with so many uh, different uh, organizations. Can that really, Liz, be underestimated, the importance of having those working relationships with, with the departments and the organizations that you do have? No, I don't. I, I think it's absolutely fundamental um, to any business, actually. But it's certainly something that that we have in the middle of the stick of rock that is PIMFA. Uh, I mean, we talk about the, you know the values that we have as an organisation. We we are a small organisation, uh, and we can't do our job unless we work in partnership and collaboration with others. So, relationship building. Um, and maintaining and creating a good foundation of relationships is absolutely fundamental to what we do. Without a doubt. And I think that's the key point, Liz, isn't it, that that's so applicable to any realm, whether it's business or, or politics or uh, any areas of life. And I think and because of the time here, we, we, I, I must start to wrap up. But um, perhaps I can ask, Liz, looking forward, and I know the next 12 months is full of uncertainty, what are uh, the plans PIMFA has for it nonetheless? Um, so I think our, well, our key priority this, this next 12 months is, is, is to be talking um, much more, um, and we, we, we have been lobbying um, a fair bit on this, but because of Brexit, um, our ability to actually kind of get into 
um, see the policymakers on both sides, I think, to have that dialogue has been a challenge. Um, but we're finding that that is changing. They, you know, they, they want to hear from us. So I think our priority is around that regulatory perimeter. Um, and what does what does regulation look like for uh, for us moving forward? But at the same time, it's not just about the future of regulation, but it's also about the future of supervision, because the two of those go hand in hand. Um, so those those two um, are kind of what are, are the main the main areas over the course of this next year. Having said that, um, you know we have a manifesto that's got six that's got six pillars in it um, and regulation and supervision and the future of that is, is just, um, kind of, is just one of those things. There are a whole host of another, of other things, promoting the sector as a, as a force for good and as an integral part of a, of an individual's kit bag um, for financial and mental wellbeing uh, is, is another key strand of, of activity. So I think future of regulation, future of supervision, and then promoting the sector as an integral part of uh, of um, everybody's kit bag in building their personal financial futures. Well, Liz, there might never be a, a more important year, uh, or has not been in a while, that will determine the future of all of those things. And perhaps never a year where so many people pay attention to what happens to Britain's fish stocks. Um, but it's been Liz, an absolute pleasure discussing that uh, leadership with you today. Uh, I hope very much we can sit down perhaps later this year uh, when there's a bit more clarity perhaps and talk through a few more things. Thank you. I would love to do that. Liz, thank you very much. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.